So I want you to use your imagination for a moment, and I want you to think of somebody in this world who's done you a fair bit of harm. Um, <laughs> think of someone, maybe it's in the past, uh, maybe it's in the present, uh, somebody maybe that you'd consider to be an enemy, uh, maybe somebody who's belittled you or hurt you, uh, someone who's made your life miserable in one way or another, Somebody who slandered you, went around telling everybody bad things about you, uh, you know, slandered your name to everyone, uh, maybe uh, have done you harm in, in business. Think, think of someone like that. I, I can think of someone like this. Uh, when I was in high school, there was a bully. Uh, his name was Tony. And uh, Tony, this is now going to be recorded and be on the internet forever. Uh, Tony made my life miserable for about two years of my high school career. Uh, he was mean, uh, he was dirty-minded, he was pretty ungodly. Uh, he used to corner me in the changing rooms before gym class and humiliate me in front of everybody. I used to dread going to gym class. That's the kind of person that I'm talking about. So you got someone like that in, in your life or, or had someone like that in the past. Now, I want you to imagine that one day uh, this person comes to you or phones you up and says, I appreciate you. I love you. I esteem you. Let's go to church together. And rather dazedly, you go along to church, and there is a tangible sense of God's presence there that morning. And you and this person truly worship God in spirit and in truth, that morning. Does that seem unthinkable to you? Well, hold that in mind as we come to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19. This is God's word. An oracle concerning Egypt. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt tremble before him. And the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian. Brother will fight against brother. Neighbor against neighbor. City against city. Kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart. And I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead. The mediums and the spiritists. And I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master. The fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. The waters of the river will dry up, and the riverbed will be parched and dry. The canals will stink, the streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither, also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river. Every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. The fishermen will groan and lament, all who cast hooks into the Nile. Those who throw nets on the water will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. The workers in cloth will be dejected, and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. The officials of Zone are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? 
Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zone have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. They will shudder with fear of the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. And the land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the city of destruction. And in that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings. They will make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. And they will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. And in that day, Israel will be the third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. This is God's word. So in the ancient Near East, there was a bully. In fact, to Israel, there was no greater and nastier bully than the nation of Egypt. You remember right at the very beginning of Israel's history, when the Israelites first became a nation, they'd become enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. Remember, it was during the time of Joseph. Israel and his sons go into Egypt. There they become a nation, but they're a nation enslaved. And you can read about that in the book of Exodus. Let me read just a couple of extracts from that passage, though, so you can get the general idea. This is what the Bible tells us. A new king who did not know about Joseph came to power in Egypt, and the Egyptians put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Israelite boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile River, but let every girl live. 
Now, we're so familiar with these verses, we tend to forget their impact. But this language is not very different from the descriptions of the concentration camps in Nazi Germany. Slavery, forced labor, state-sponsored genocide is what the Israelites had experienced at the hands of the Egyptians. But now, during the time of Isaiah, there was a bigger bully uh, who'd recently moved into the neighborhood, and that was the nation of Assyria. In 745 BC, uh, the soldier Tiglath-Pileser III usurped the Assyrian throne, and his rather modest aim was to try and take over the world, uh, which he did with alarming success. One writer describes the nation of Assyria like this. The Assyrians were cultivated, but they were killers. Brutally aggressive, they destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, and if they could have, their armies under Sennacherib would have ravaged the holy city of Jerusalem in Judah. Even now, when we look at the huge Assyrian frescoes in our museums and their scenes of battle and feasting, It's possible for you and me to sense something of the fear and loathing with which the Israelites faced those bearded warriors with their immense muscles and heavy swords, their horrifying military efficiency, and their arrogance. And the Judeans, living in a country that was about the size of the Kruger National Park, looked towards the north, saw this superpower coming, and they were terrified. They didn't know what to do. The prophets, including Isaiah, encouraged the nation to trust God. In the face of this threat, just trust God. But many in the nation felt that God was all very well for religious matters. He was good for church services, but he wasn't much help in the realm of international politics. There was a huge percentage of the population who didn't want to trust an invisible God. Rather, they wanted to trust someone or something more tangible. So what do you do if you're a tiny nation and there's a much bigger and more powerful nation to the north of you who wants to destroy you? Well, if you're not going to trust in God, then you might try and get the first bully to fight the second bully. And that's what some people in the kingdom of Judah were suggesting. Such was their desperation that they were saying, well, you know, the Egyptians aren't quite as bad as all that. They get a lot of bad press, but deep down, they're really misunderstood. There are many people in Judah who are saying, well, let's just make a treaty with Egypt and trust Egypt to defend us against the Assyrians. That kind of policy was insanity. But that's what happens when we reject God. We looked at this quote a few weeks ago. One writer says, Once we abandon a heartfelt conviction that God does truly care for us and is intimately involved with us, once we abandon His perspective for our own, then suddenly decisions which are utterly foolish viewed from God's perspective become intelligent and wise to us. When we cannot trust God, it suddenly makes good sense to trust our worst enemy. Well, here in Isaiah chapter 19, Isaiah speaks to the people of Judah about the foolishness of trusting in Egypt. He says to the people, don't rely on Egypt. It's pointless to put your trust in Egypt. 
and for two reasons. Firstly, because God is going to break Egypt, and secondly, because God is going to bless Egypt. I think the key verse here is verse 22. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. And that might seem like a strange message to us, but I think as we go through these verses, we'll, we'll understand the message a bit more clearly, and we'll see how it applies to our own hearts and lives as well. So firstly, God says to Judah through Isaiah, don't rely on Egypt because God will break her. That's the message of verses 1 to 15. You see, like many bullies, uh, Egypt could have been described as being tall, dark, and handsome. It's often like that, isn't it, with many bullies. They're the popular kids, the attractive ones, the athletic ones, and the Egyptians were no exception. The Egyptians, in fact, had three claims to fame. Firstly, there was her religion. The Egyptians had a plethora of gods of whom they were extremely proud. The Egyptians had over 60 gods and goddesses, and one of the chief ones was the pharaoh himself, uh, who was considered to be a human manifestation of the gods. The prophet Ezekiel tells us that when the Israelites were in Egypt, they became so fascinated with the Egyptian gods that some of them started to worship them. After all, it's a lot easier to worship the sun, the moon, the stars, and the Pharaoh, who you can see, as opposed to Yahweh, who you cannot see. And the temptation was always there for the Israelites to worship the Egyptians' seemingly bigger and better gods. Right up until today, people have been fascinated with Egyptian religion. If you go into exclusive books, you can find many books that promote the religion of ancient Egypt and try and unwrap its mysteries for today. But in verses 1 to 4, God says to his people, don't trust Egypt because I'm going to strike her so-called gods. See, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and is coming to Egypt. The idols of Egypt tremble before him and the hearts of the Egyptians melt within them. I will stir up Egyptian against Egyptian, brother will fight against brother, neighbor against neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The Egyptians will lose heart, and I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists, but I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty." God says he's going to strike the Egyptians at the very point of their pride, their religion. Egypt's second claim to fame was her geographical location. If you ever get onto Google Earth, uh, you can find a satellite image of the Nile Delta in Egypt. And it's amazing. Everything around it is desert, but along the Nile there and at the Delta, you've got this lush vegetation. In fact, it's true to say that without the Nile River, there wouldn't be an Egypt at all. The Sahara Desert would just continue on, unbroken until the Red Sea. The Nile flooded on the same week of every single year, bringing down new soil, washing away all of the old year's debris. And also the floodwaters receded on exactly the same week of every single year. It was like clockwork. Because of that rich soil, the Egyptians could have a very successful farming industry. Uh, throughout her history, Egypt was able to export grain to the rest of the world. 
Remember that that's the reason that Jacob and his family go to Egypt in the first place. It's because there's grain in Egypt. Even in New Testament times, when Paul has been taken to Rome, we read that he travels on an Egyptian grain ship. They're still exporting food to the rest of the world. And there were all sorts of other Egyptian industries that grew up around the Nile River. There was the fishing industry. There was the linen industry, making linen from flax. The Nile was the center of Egyptian commerce and industry. And yet God says to his people, don't trust Egypt. I'm going to strike the very heart of her wealth. From verse 5, the waters of the river will dry up and the riverbed will be parched and dry. The canals will stink. The streams of Egypt will dwindle and dry up. The reeds and rushes will wither. Also the plants along the Nile at the mouth of the river. Every sown field along the Nile will become parched, will blow away and be no more. The fishermen will groan and lament. All who cast hooks into the Nile, those who throw nets on the water will pine away. Those who work with combed flax will despair. The weavers of fine linen will lose hope. The workers in cloth will be dejected and all the wage earners will be sick at heart. Egypt's third claim to fame was her great wisdom. The Egyptians were well known for their wisdom and ingenuity. In fact, to this day, we still don't know how they built the pyramids. The Egyptians were highly skilled and intelligent. In fact, it's interesting when the Old Testament introduces us to King Solomon, we read that Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. In other words, until Solomon, Egypt was the benchmark for wisdom. They were the ones who'd learned to make papyrus from the river reeds. They were the ones who'd invented that intricate system of hieroglyphics. Uh, They had the world-famous library at Alexandria. They were really, really smart. And yet God says, don't trust Egypt because I will bring her great wisdom to nothing. Verse 11, the officials of Zone are nothing but fools. The wise counselors of Pharaoh give senseless advice. How can you say to Pharaoh, I am one of the wise men, a disciple of the ancient kings? Where are your wise men now? Let them show you and make known what the Lord Almighty has planned against Egypt. The officials of Zone have become fools. The leaders of Memphis are deceived. The cornerstones of her peoples have led Egypt astray. The Lord has poured into them a spirit of dizziness. They make Egypt stagger in all that she does as a drunkard staggers around in his vomit. There is nothing Egypt can do, head or tail, palm branch or reed. So one by one then, God knocks out all of Egypt's claims to fame, her sophisticated religion, her geographical location, along with its resulting wealth, her great wisdom. And at the end, the picture is not a pretty one. Egypt is staggering staggering around like a drunk in his vomit. What then is the point of trusting something so vulnerable and weak and unpredictable? I guess the question for all, all of us this morning is, what is my Egypt? What is it, or perhaps who is it, 
that I trust in more than God? Who is it or what is it that I turn to in times of crisis? Who is it or what is it that takes up the majority of my time and the majority of my thoughts? Who or what do we consider first before we take action in the various areas of our lives? Because we can safely say from this passage that whatever or whomever it is apart from God is just as frail and vulnerable and weak as ancient Egypt. My bank account could be wiped out tomorrow morning. My health could be taken from me at any moment. My job, my house, my car, the political party in which I put so much trust. (laughs) My very life is incredibly, incredibly fragile. A little earlier in the book then, Isaiah warned us, stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? But if we truly fear God, then there will be no need for us to fear anything else. Isaiah says, don't trust in Egypt because God will break her. But secondly, Isaiah comes to his people and he says, don't trust Egypt because God is going to bless her. That's what verses 16 to 25 are all about. Let's begin maybe just by looking at the first two verses. In that day, the Egyptians will become like women. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. The land of Judah will bring terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom Judah is mentioned will be terrified because of what the Lord Almighty is planning against them. Now, that doesn't sound particularly like blessing, does it? I mean, here you've got the Egyptians all huddled together in a heap, terrified of Israel and Israel's God. And yet, actually, I think that that is a place of healing. It's not when Egypt is stood tall confident of her own religion and her abilities and her riches that she can be healed. It's when Egypt is broken and humbled and desperate that she's in a position to hear from God and to be healed. I think we need to pause here for a moment because so far in this sermon we've been identifying ourselves with Israel and we've heard God's warning not to trust Egypt, but now we have to identify ourselves with Egypt in these verses. Because it's so easy for us in our lives to become proud and self-reliant and self-sufficient. And sometimes it takes a disaster or several disasters to bring us back to God. We don't have time this morning to discuss whether God deliberately sends things into our lives or whether He allows things into our lives. But we do know that God works through all things in our lives. And sometimes it's only when we've reached the very end of ourselves that we can begin to hear from God. Last week we saw how God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And we saw how the Bible says we are to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand before God does the job for us. So it's easier for us to humble ourselves and have God humble us. And maybe for someone here this morning, you're beginning to feel God's opposition. Maybe you're beginning to experience some of the consequences of your sin. My dear friend, this is an opportunity for you to turn to God and experience His healing. 
One Bible commentator puts it this way. Repentance, repentance and healing come through retribution and judgment. And those who have not experienced the result of their sin are very likely to deny that they have any sin. But those who are crushed will be looking for a redeemer. And Isaiah promises exactly that. It's not that punishment somehow pays for the sin. No one can do that short of forfeiting forever any relationship with a holy God. Rather, the judgment alerts us to start looking for the way out, a way God wants to show all of us. Perhaps for others here this morning, we're experiencing the difficulties of just living in a broken world, maybe sickness, loss, unemployment. God can use those things to call us back to himself. Many of you will know the name Clive Staples Lewis, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Narnia books. Later on in life, uh, he married a lady called Joy Gresham and uh, experienced very late in life the joy of love. But then he lost her to cancer after just two years of marriage. He wrote about his experience in a little book called The Problem of Pain. And in that book, he says this about pain and suffering. He says, everyone has noticed how hard it is to turn our thoughts to God when everything is going well with us. We have all we want is a terrible saying when all does not include God. We find God an interruption. As St. Augustine says somewhere, God wants to give us something, but he cannot because our hands are full. There's nowhere for him to put it. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. No doubt pain as God's megaphone is a terrible instrument. It may lead to final and unrepentant rebellion, but it gives the only opportunity the bad man can have for amendment. It removes the veil. It plants the flag of truth within the fortress of a rebel soul. I wonder if you can identify with that this morning. If you're feeling poor and needy and desperate, take heart. You're in the best position to hear from God. What's preventing you from turning to him this morning? You know, no matter where we find ourselves, there's a wonderful promise in the book of Job in the Old Testament, very similar to our key verse this morning. The Bible said, says, blessed is the one whom God corrects. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty, for he wounds, but he also binds up. He injures, but his hands also heal. And he longs to bring healing to us this morning. Let's move on a little bit and look at how God will bless the Egyptians. Verses 18 to 25. In that day, five cities in Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord Almighty. One of them will be called the City of the Sun. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the heart of Egypt and a monument to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and witness to the Lord Almighty in the land of Egypt. When they cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, he will send them a savior and defender, and he will rescue them. And so the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. They will worship with sacrifices and grain offerings, 
they'll make vows to the Lord and keep them. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. He will strike them and heal them. And they will turn to the Lord and he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And in that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and Assyrians will worship together. And in that day, Israel will be third along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. Remember that enemy I, I, I invited you to think about at the beginning of the sermon? Well, this was a mind-blowing thought to the Israelites that the Egyptians, the Egyptians of all people, would turn to God. It was inconceivable. There's a stack of things we could look at in these verses, but let me just mention a couple of things. Firstly then, as we've said, Judah shouldn't trust Egypt because in time, Egypt will come to acknowledge God as Lord. And that too has something very important to say to the Egypts in our own lives. Who are we placing our trust in this morning? Our university professor, our pastor, our financial advisor, our bank manager, our lawyer, our, our doctor. One day, each of those men and women will bow their knee and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ alone is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's far better to trust God now when one day everyone will acknowledge him. But these verses also speak about God's grace. Notice a couple of things here. Notice that God's grace is for the very worst of people. The Egyptians had been terrible. The Assyrians were terrible. And yet Isaiah says that there is no one who is beyond the grace of God. That God treats these people groups in exactly the same way. It's actually quite fascinating. In verse 20, uh, we read, When the Egyptians cry out to the Lord because of their oppressors, He will send them a Savior and Defender, and He will rescue them. Now, that is identical to the description we have of God acting on behalf of the Israelites when they were enslaved by the Egyptians. Exodus chapter 2. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. And we read how he sends them a savior and redeemer, Moses, who leads them out of Egypt. It's exactly the same words. God will graciously rescue the Egyptians in the same way as he'd rescued the Israelites. Here at the end of the chapter 19, we, got, we read God addressing Egypt with the same title that he'd previously used for Israel. Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria, my handiwork. Israel, my inheritance. Nobody is beyond God's grace. Nobody. Lovely watching the Alpha uh, film series a few weeks ago. We saw various testimonies from different people. One man had been a drug addict. Uh, he said he was literally on the road to hell. He had no respect for anyone. Stabbed a policeman. Ended up in prison. And there did an Alpha course and became gloriously saved. And is now dealing with other people who are in prison. So who have we given up on this morning? Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's that enemy that we've been thinking about this morning. Maybe we've given up on ourselves. God is able to turn the very worst situations around. 
In the book of Ephesians, we're reminded that God is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine in our life, in the life of others. But finally, I think it's important to see what it is that this grace achieves. And the key verse in this section is verse 21. So the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and in that day they will acknowledge the Lord. He's speaking about knowledge of God, and not simply intellectual knowledge, but personal knowledge, that the Egyptians are going to come to know God personally. He speaks about monuments and sacrifices and grain offerings and vows, but those flow out of a much deeper reality. The Egyptians will know and acknowledge God. And it's a stunning vision that Isaiah gives at the end of these verses. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together, In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. The question is, of course, is this just wishful thinking, or is there more to it than that? Well, there was a very large Jewish community in Egypt from the time of their exile onward, which had a huge influence on the Egyptians. There were those in Egypt uh, who acknowledged God uh, all the way back in 400 BC. At present, there are Christians in Egypt, brothers and sisters, who worship God even under very difficult circumstances. But there's also a fascinating fulfillment of this prophecy within the New Testament itself. I wonder if you remember it. It's a little piece of the Christmas story that we sometimes forget. But Matthew chapter 2, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod, about two years. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Long before God honored Galilee of the Gentiles, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. God's light was in Egypt. And for two years, Egypt provided shelter and protection for Jesus and his family. Egypt had a part in bringing God's light into the world. Egypt was indeed a blessing on the earth. But one day, Isaiah's prophecy will finally be fulfilled. In the book of Revelation in the New Testament, the Apostle John gets a vision of the last day, God's day, the in that day of this passage. And this is what he says. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. One day, one day, this is going to come true, that former enemies will be together. I remember uh, hearing an interview with a a lady who lived in in a city overseas Uh, It was a really safe city. She said she could walk the streets at 12 o'clock at night and not fear anything, which is so different to our own country. And I thought of that verse in the book of Revelation where it says, there will be no one to make them a 
afraid. One day, people from every tribe will stand before God. But what do we do with this vision? Both Isaiah's vision and John's vision. Well, biblical pictures like this aren't simply meant to satisfy our curiosity about the future. They're given as something to work towards. In 2 Peter chapter 3, the Apostle Peter also describes something of God's last day. And then he says this, In the light of this, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Every time I pray for people, when I pray for my enemies, doing for them what they cannot do for themselves, every time I take a step towards reconciliation, every time I speak about my faith, every time I live out what I believe, when I support missionaries, either financially or in prayer, then I've got the immense privilege of working with God to bring this vision to reality. As we prayed earlier, may your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth now as it is in heaven. What happened to Tony the bully from my high school? Well, in standard eight, he was knocked over by a car. Uh, Not quite like that. He wasn't killed. (laughs) But he did break his leg in a couple of places, and he was off school in a wheelchair for a few months. During that time, I went to visit him. I took him a gift. I wrote in a card that I was praying for him. And when he came back to school, he never bullied me ever again. He was still foul-mouthed and uncouth. I looked him up on Facebook a few years ago, and he hasn't changed. Still uh, quite far from God. But perhaps one day, and Tony, if you are listening to this, God loves you and wants you to come to him. (laughs) Tony isn't beyond God's grace. And I know that because I'm not beyond God's grace. My Muslim neighbor is not beyond God's grace. And in this week that lies ahead, let's work, even in small ways, to share the message of God's unending grace with those around us to bring this vision to a reality.